On today's episode of the Clinical Excellence Podcast, we have Dr. Kevin Rogan talking about breaking bad news in a surgical practice. I try to prepare my patients from the moment I meet them to expect the unexpected. We're back with another episode of the Clinical Excellence Podcast sponsored by the Bucksbaum Institute. During this podcast, we discuss, dissect, and promote clinical excellence. We review research pertinent to clinical excellence. We invite experts to discuss topics that often challenge the physician-patient relationship. And we host conversations between patients and doctors. I'm Adam Seafew, and today I'm joined by Dr. Kevin Rogan. Dr. Rogan is a general surgeon and a surgical oncologist who is an expert in complex upper GI and hepato-pancreato-biliary surgery. He has adopted cutting-edge advanced robotic surgical techniques at the University of Chicago, including the robotic Whipple procedure, a robotic total gastrectomy, and robotic foregut and liver surgery. Over his 17-year career at the University of Chicago, he has been an award-winning surgical educator and has served for over a decade as the General Surgery Residency Program Director. Dr. Rogan is both a senior faculty scholar in the Bucksbaum Institute and a master in the Academy of Distinguished Medical Educators at the Pritzker School of Medicine. Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's my pleasure to be here, Adam. Thank you. Did I totally botch the pronunciation of no, all this I was, surgical? <laughs> I was quite impressed. You paused at the right spots. and Pretty good, right? I don't know who you're talking about, but it sounds yeah, right. pretty good. Exactly. As an internist, you know, you get nervous talking to surgeons. <laughs> Um, so I've invited you here for kind of a tough topic. And interestingly, I thought of you because of an experience that we had together like over a decade ago. So my question, sort of the first question is, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I've broken a lot of bad news in my career, but I feel like whenever I break bad news, it tends to be expected. You know, people are coming in for visits. They've had time to prepare they know that we're going to be going over, you know, a pathology report or a radiology report, or they've kind of come into the office concerned about something, and I'm almost like reinforcing their fear. I imagine you've had experiences where you're talking to, you know, a patient or a patient's family about really unexpected outcomes right after surgery. And so I guess maybe so people have a sense of what we're talking about without giving kind of identifiable details, is there a case that you can think of that you know, you've been a part of that this was an issue? First of all, Adam, thank you for inviting me. It's a, a pleasure to contribute to this, and uh, I'm really happy to share my experiences. And you know, breaking bad news is one of the hardest parts about my job, both as a general surgeon and surgical oncologist. And I have numerous um, vivid details of patient scenarios that you know I, I try to think of in preparation for this uh, podcast. But I'll just talk about one that happened yeah. recently. Um, I operated on a patient with pancreatic cancer. We were set up to do a removal of the tumor. And uh, we uh, had explored her. We took her to the operating room and put a laparoscope in. And unfortunately, there was metastatic disease, mm -hmm. meaning the tumor had spread from the pancreas to the peritoneal lining. So um, obviously, this is not uncommon in right. what I do as a surgical oncologist. And so I try to prepare my patients from the moment I meet them to expect the unexpected. And uh, whether it's making sure that I go over the risks of a particular operation, or more importantly, and relevant to this discussion, uh, I want to tell them that, that even though the CAT scan was clean, that there still is about a 15 to 20% chance that when we 
put the scope in that we might see spread. Yeah. And if that's the case, doing or proceeding with the major operation with risk doesn't help her or him live longer. And so I try to prepare when I see them in clinic. And then on the morning of surgery, when I'm talking to the patient right before they're about to go to sleep, I try to say, remind them of what we talked about yeah. in clinic, since yeah. most of the time they, they you know, it escapes their memory. And I, I try to say that, you know, if we find spread of disease, yeah. you're going to wake up early yeah. instead of waking up around 2 p.m. Yeah. It's going to be 8.30. Yeah. And if we find that, uh, we'll find another way to treat your cancer. Right. It may mean that we can't cure your cancer, but I try to make sure that they understand that just because it didn't go according to plan, that we'll find plan B and C. And if not, we'll be honest with them about what this means right. in terms of prognosis. So it sounds like you're almost preparing them for bad news rather than a surprise in that way. I, I, you know, I think if experienced surgeons always expect the unexpected, yeah. and they also try to game the system in some ways so that patients go into any operation with, you know, the possibilities. But when I was a resident and doing trauma surgery, there would often be cases where you would take someone to the operating room urgently. Yeah. And maybe there was a 50-50 chance that they wouldn't survive. And so I have definitely been in scenarios where you have to leave the OR and you can't save the patient right. and then have to face a family that is hearing, you know, the worst news that they could possibly hear. And I do think there are strategies on how to manage that yeah. situation. Maybe I'll get to that, but I want to step back for a second and ask you, because we've all had the experience where we know we say things in the office and we feel like, boy, we've done an amazing job preparing people. And then in the next conversation, it's like you never had that visit, right? Um, I imagine that happens to you sometimes. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, for, as a surgical oncologist, I'm meeting patients on the worst day of their life. <laughs> right. And it's a shock to them. And, you know, the reference to the Peanuts cartoon where the adults are talking in tones and you don't hear the words, I think... <laughs> Often you say the word cancer yeah. and they forget everything that I say. So I've learned not to repeat myself over and yeah. over again in yeah. clinic. I usually encourage you know family members to take notes or other people to be there. But often I follow up a conversation over the phone so that I highlighted the important points, yeah. the take-home messages. I think through repetition and you know making sure that they once they've gotten over the initial shock yeah. of the cancer diagnosis, I then want to circle back and make sure that they understood what I was saying and answer additional questions. So it's also often multiple conversations right. in advance. Right. Especially if they're having to make decisions that probably that first conversation is not not a deciding time. Right. right. And, and sometimes people come to my office and they're completely unprepared for the news. And other times they've heard it yeah. from their referring yeah. physician or yeah. primary doctor. Right. Or some primary care doctors just leave it to the surgeon. That happens, but I, I understand, and it's a really tough yeah. conversation. And, yeah. and you yeah. know, I have experience to deal with that. I think. So let me. I'm going to switch around and how I was going to ask the questions, but since you brought up the, you know, maybe sort of post-trauma experience, um, you know, where you go in with a patient who's you know terribly unstable but alive and come out after a patient has died and have to face, you know, one or more family members. I imagine that occasionally there's not only shock, but real anger in that um, sort of conversation. 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's some practical tips. Yeah. One is that you need to make sure that wherever you're having the conversation, you know where the exit is. <laughs> you need to make sure that yeah. you have a team around you and you know, protect the trainees and the other yeah. people that may be coming in. But I've found that in those situations, you, you have to be direct. Yeah. You can't use euphemistic terms. Someone died. Yeah. You have to explain to them. And I've seen the whole range of reactions from the most positive where people who are of faith and have uh, understanding that there's a, a place that their relative has gone to, yeah. uh, you draw into their religious right. beliefs to help them assist them through that time. And so I've been amazed by how powerful that is yeah. in getting people through difficult times. I've had outright anger where people throw things and are screaming. And as long as you feel safe, I, I think that you just have to be in that situation. You have to give them the opportunity to to let their feelings out. Often they you know misplace their feelings of anger onto you or your team. And I think you have a duty to protect your team and make sure. And I've had to get up and yeah. then circle back. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, I think when you go into that room, especially when you're breaking the worst news, I think you just have to be on guard. You have to be aware that this is a the worst time on, in this family's life, and you want to try to do everything that you can to help them navigate this tragedy. Right. Your your point of misplaced anger is so good because. As I think back to interactions um, like this, where I've sort of taken the brunt of anger, um, it's actually usually from a family rather than a patient. It's often in the weeks or months later that people are apologizing to me about that first reaction. And of course, you know, our reaction is you certainly don't need to apologize to me. Um, but right, they're angry about the situation, they're angry about the disease, they're angry about what's happened, and you're sort of the representation of it that's easy to go after at the time. Yeah, I mean, you have to be a true professional in this situation, and you just have to take it sometimes yeah. and let <laughs> yeah. people air out. And I I believe in human beings to be kind-hearted and good, and they always come back. And if they don't, I, I understand that as well. Yeah. I'm not offended either way. No. I just want to be in the moment, be there for them, share the news directly, and, and look them in the eye when I'm talking to them. And, you know, if, if their reaction is one of anger, I, I can deal with it. Yeah. I just... I need to protect myself and my team. And, and you know, it, it, there's also been situations where family members have passed out. And <laughs> so you can instantly shift from being a bad news bearer to a physician trying to help resuscitate someone. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was another memorable event that happened, breaking bad news. So you're also obviously very involved in medical education and surgical education. And part of that is obviously teaching trainees to do this well going forward. How does that happen? Is that, I mean, clearly through observation at first, but how do you kind of transition to trainees taking a real role in these conversations? That's a great question. Well, one of the benefits of working at the place I have, especially the University of Chicago, is that there, there are a tremendous number of mentors all around. And I've seen you in practice and your colleagues and colleagues in surgery. And I, I feel like we're always learning how to be better. So number one, I try to model the appropriate behavior. So you have to emphasize if, you know, in your own actions, and then take a moment after you've had that encounter, step outside, and all it takes is a minute to make yeah. sure you highlight the important details. So things like sitting down on the level that the patient's at, 
um, inviting family into the room, um, inviting them to record your conversation. Yeah, yeah. It's not a litigious uh, situation. Right. It's that they may forget and encouraging them to feel like they have the um, ability to take down the notes or record yeah. the conversation so they can go back to it in the future. And then looking them in the eye. And again, as I said before, I try to be direct. I, I try to think of myself as I'm in this moment and I don't want to use euphemisms or be somewhat non-committal. Yeah. I also highlight the limits of my knowledge and yeah. understanding. And when I have the conversation, I take a moment to make sure that I answer all their questions and also offer the opportunity to circle back either by phone or in person to help sort some facts out or to help make sure they're understanding it. I think that's how I've done it. And when I look at how I learned that, it was from observing people and watching their style. And I think all of our ability to do that is an amalgam of the experiences we've had, the intentional and unintentional things, the nonverbal, verbal cues and ways of communicating with patients. And sometimes it's it's reaching out and, you know, putting your hand on their shoulder yeah. or grabbing their yeah. hand or showing compassion. I, I think that helps a lot. And I think trainees understand that, but I want to make sure that when I'm done, right. that they know what they just saw right. and, and have the opportunity to ask questions. Yeah, I do think so much of, you know, especially kind of postgraduate medical training, right, is making sure that the experience ends up being some sort of deliberate practice, right? And and often it is that time of, okay, even if it's just a couple of minutes, let's, you know, reflect sounds so bad, but it is that. It's sort of let's reflect on what happened. And even sometimes it's calling attention to yourself and like, this is what I did and this is why I did it. Even if it goes badly, right? Um, I can still picture the place in the hospital that I brought a student in once for a family meeting. And it goes down in history for me as the worst family meeting I ever had, where the family ended up voting on something and I lost terribly in the vote. <laughs> um, and the student and I went to another room and sat down and I said, like, well, that was the worst family meeting I've ever had, and this is why. Um, and the student actually, you know, sent me a note a few years later um, that, boy, I was just in a similar family meeting and I remembered that one. And although I felt terrible that like he still remembered it, <laughs> it was kind of wonderful to hear that, right? I mean, we, we've all had difficult situations, the ones that didn't go as planned. And I think recognizing that as well yeah. and admitting, look, I, if I could have done this over again, I might have done X, Y, yeah. and Z. Um, but I think when you're dealing with adult learners, uh, oftentimes, you, you know, they're at a much higher level of understanding. And I think sometimes they nod and, and are approving, but they're actually going through that experience as well. Right. They're feeling those emotions. And so another key component is making sure that the people you're teaching or observing are yeah. okay. And, yeah. and, and, and we often, you know, have a pause where after a code or a death or even a difficult conversation in a medical morbidity and mortality conference, that we make sure that we take care of the people that are learning. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's often very difficult for them to hear some of these things or have family experiences that, you know, that right. it evokes memories of. Right. And of course you learn, you learn from good experiences as much as bad experiences and right. seeing things that didn't go well, you learn a ton from, um, you know, whether it's surgical or decision-making or in kind of human interaction, right? Mm -hmm. And so, Kevin, thank you so much. That was a great conversation and really all I wanted to kind of tease out of you. Um, so thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Clinical Excellence Podcast. We are sponsored by the Buxbaum Institute for Clinical Excellence at the University of Chicago. Please feel free to reach out to us with your thoughts and ideas on the Buxbaum Institute Twitter page. 
The music for the Clinical Excellence Podcast is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez. <laughs>